Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Griffin Strom. And for the start of this week's episode, Garrick Hodge, who's going to join us to talk about Ohio State football recruiting. A few uh, big weeks coming up on the recruiting trail for Ohio State as uh, lots of visitors are going to be coming in to Columbus. So, Garrick, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. I can actually kind of walk a little bit now. It's fun. Yeah, for for those who don't know, Garrick has been uh, recovering from an uh, ankle leg break. You know the specifics better than I do, Garrick. But uh, he's about uh, three months of recovery now, uh, so he's he's get he's getting back. Uh, he's been fighting through it, uh, still uh, photoing and and shooting uh, spring football stuff for us. So uh, he's grinding through adversity, as we like to say in football. Well, you got to grind through adversity and. Uh... I just I'm fueled by that competitive stamina that Ryan Day <laughs> speaks so highly about every week. As mentioned, there's going to be a, a lot of visitors uh, on campus uh, over the next few weeks. I mean, some already this week as Ohio State has come back uh, from spring break. Uh, there's going to be uh, even more this weekend when Ohio State is going to have uh, its first scrimmage of the spring, uh, which we're actually going to get to attend, which is pretty exciting. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the show. But, um, you know, in, from a recruiting perspective, certainly I think this week, uh, next week as well with the Student Appreciation Day, and then, of course, the spring game uh, are, are going to be three, you know, really important Saturdays here for Ohio State to impress some of its top targets in the 2024 class and beyond. I know you've been keeping a running visitor list going all spring, Garrick. When you look at that list right now, who are a few names that really stand out of Ohio State needs to impress these guys on there on campus? Well, this week specifically, it's a, it's a very busy week for Mark Pantone and his staff, no doubt about it. Saturday for sure in the scrimmage, and uh, there's no shortage of premier names that we'll get to in a second there. But even before that, like the Tuesday and Thursday of this week, you got uh, a lot of nice local guys like Tavion St. Clair, 2025 quarterback that they haven't offered yet, but are still very highly considering. And then Marquise Davis, 2025 running back that they have offered and is going to be a really big target for them in the 2025 class. And speaking of running backs from Ohio in the 2025 class, this is always my favorite guy to write about because it always gets some like casual recruiting fans caught off base. Bo Jackson. Because they'll be like, Bo Jackson talks about his love for Ohio State. And they'll be like, excuse me, who? <laughs> but no, yes, it is the uh, the Cleveland running back, Bo Jackson, not the former uh, Raiders running back, Bo Jackson. But very good prospect nonetheless. And then Jordan Lyle uh, running back in the 2024 class out of Florida that they offered a couple months ago was coming in on Thursday. And one of my early intriguing Ohio prospects for the 2025 class, Raphael Green, offensive tackle out of Witten Woods, and has a British accent because he was born in London. One of my favorite prospects I've interviewed since I've taken this job. Here I'll also be here on Thursday with a host of his teammates over at Witten Woods. But now we'll get into the meat and potatoes of the week, and it's probably headlined by Dylan Stewart, five-star defensive end. <laughs> Recruiting services are a little... I guess mixed on him on three considers him last. I looked the 
top rated player in the entire 2024 circle. Whereas 24 seven has him more as a, you know, 120 type of guy nationally. And I think he's probably somewhere in the middle of that. I don't necessarily think that he's that top five player in this class that you've got to have. But I also think that his measurables are as such that he's just a lights out player that would make a great get for any team. So he's supposed to be here on the 24th. Uh, could extend into the 25th on that scrimmage and will be the first visit that he's taken to Ohio state since June, that camp that you and I attended and saw him work out at. And, you know, he called Ohio state a 10 out of 10 there. And, you know, he's a busy man this spring and attending a lot of different schools as you know, the upper echelon prospects usually are. And, this is Ohio State's chance to make a, quite an impression on a guy that they're going to be very highly on. And then moving into more locally, the Armstrong twins um, are at a St. Edward are supposed to be here. Both have er- earned Ohio State offers, and both have really kind of seen their recruiting stock rise over the last couple of months. And a similar guy in that vein, Mark Nave, who has actually already committed to Ohio State, He's going to be here again. He uh, committed the day after his visit on the 7th of March. He's supposed to be here again. We've got, uh, all right, I I, like paused because I've like gotten minor anxiety about pronouncing this guy's name, but I'm going to go for it. If I Obdigu, cornerback, oh, I think I got that right. Yep. (laughs) I've seen baby. Um, he's going to be here and regardless, and, uh, if I, if I, uh, butchered his name, I, uh, very much apologize, but he's going to be here and a top 150 prospect, another guy that Ohio state is going to have a chance to impress. Then another one that is a big headliner, but he's not until 2025 is Bryce Underwood, who is a top five prospect in that class and the top rated quarterback in that class. So, Oh, and I won't forget uh, Jordan Johnson, Rubel, four-star 2024 safety out of IMG Academy. He will also be in attendance for the Buckeye spring scrimmage on Saturday. So a lot to cover there and a lot more that I didn't cover that you can uh, check out on our running visitor list. So no shortage of intriguing prospects there whatsoever. Yeah, Garrick, you, you just gave us obviously a rundown there of, of notable visitors coming up kind of this week. But uh, I'm wondering, you know, maybe for some of those bigger kind of April dates, obviously with the student appreciation day on April 1st being a big one, then obviously the spring game on April 15th. Are there any other, you know, big heavy hitters uh, that you would like people to keep an eye out for um, as far as recruiting, recruiting coverage and things like that for a couple of those dates there? Uh, we'll start with uh, student appreciation day on April 1st. Um, I've got four that come to the top of my head. Um, the first being James Peoples. Um, I would probably call him the number two priority running back for Ohio State's class behind Jordan Marshall. You could make an argument that Sam Williams-Dixon has that spot too, but um, I think from a talent standpoint, James Peoples has to be number two, if not number one. Um, He's going to be taking a spring visit to Columbus and a second visit to Columbus total on March 30th, and he'll be there through the first. So, um, you know, caught up with James uh, about a month or two ago and, He said that this is a very important visit for him because he wants to kind of get an understanding of the layout, wants to communicate with Coach Alford, and really just wants to see how far the Buckeyes have him in their plans, essentially. And he's already confirmed that he's 
going to take an official visit to the Buckeyes in June. They will be one of his five that he ends up taking. Second one is Air Noland, 2024 quarterback that does not yet hold an offer from Ohio State, but very well could on that visit. Uh, caught up with Air, and he said that he expects to be offered on that visit. I'm sure we'll uh, delve into him, as I'm sure uh, looking at the rundown, you two might have a question about him, so we'll come back to Air. But And then Marcellus Williams, a St. John Bosco cornerback from the 2024 class. Ohio State was really into him in the summer of 2021. Communication trailed off a little bit after that with the uh, staff turnover, but communications picked back up with him and Coach Walton. He's going to be there on April 1st and is very much considering Ohio State. And then the fourth five-star quarterback, Charles Lester, um, is supposed to be there on April 1st, and that will be the second-to-last visit he takes to Ohio State before making a decision with the last visit coming in June for an official visit. It's not quite the spring game, but I'm going to cheat and say that I think Miles Lockhart coming on April 10th is one to look out for. He's already another guy that's locked in an official visit to June, and I think that he has made no reservations about his aficionado for Ohio State and his love for all things Buckeyes. So that could be an interesting visit to keep an eye out for. In terms of the spring game itself, Jeremiah Smith, who has been taking numerous visits to other schools, and there's always an article written about him every week, it seems, from national outlets. He'll be there the 15th. Uh, Ryan Montgomery, a very high target on Ohio State's quarterback board in the 2025 class. He'll be there. King Joseph Edwards, 2024 defensive end, borderline five-star guy. He's supposed to be there. Ian Moore, Ohio State commitment. He'll also be there. And a guy that's scheduled to visit on the 14th that might just uh, stay an extra day and attend that spring game, five-star Camarion Franklin out of Mississippi. So we'll be uh, a very interesting couple of weeks to follow in the recruiting sphere. You mentioned a lot of cornerbacks there. Charles Lester, Marcellus Williams, Miles Lockhart. I believe Aaron Scott and Bryce West are both scheduled to visit in April as well. Uh, Jonte Gilbert, their 2025 commit, who kind of like Jeremiah Smith, he's committed to Ohio State, but he's been flirting with some other schools. Uh, he's 2025, so he's still got two more years there where Ohio State might have to uh, continue recruiting him. But certainly, cornerback seems to be a very high priority position for Ohio State in recruiting right now. When you just look at that group of guys, you mentioned Miles Lockhart. He he seems like of all those guys, probably the the if you if you're gonna put like who's the most likely guy to end up at Ohio State, I, I think Miles Lockhart seems to be at the top of that list right now. Where do you feel Ohio State stands with those other guys? Of the names you've mentioned, I'd say that they're probably either the clubhouse leader or very close to the leader for all of them, save Charles Lester. I think that Florida State's probably the heavy favorite in that recruitment. But I mean, he is visiting Ohio State twice, so that certainly could change. But Oh, and I guess I shouldn't say that they're uh, Marcellus Williams. I'd say that they're probably lagging behind a couple other schools for there. But I'd say that they're the clubhouse leader for Aaron Scott, Bryce West, Lockhart. And then I know Gilbert's a little, you know, intriguing considering that he's uh, flirting with Tennessee and, you know, has flirted with Georgia and has been seen wearing Tennessee gloves recently. But he is still committed to Ohio State. So until he's not, you know, I'd still tend to think that they're the favorite until something changes. So, but West Lockhart, Scott Gilbert, 
and Gilbert is supposed to visit April 4th. So I imagine that'll be a big visit for him and um, certainly Tim Walton in Ohio state to make sure that they're still in good standing with him. And let's just call it the way it is with him. It's going to be a dog fight the next two years to make sure that they retain that commitment to national signing day. There's, but he is still committed. So I always uh, operate under the terms that until he's gone, they're still the favorite to land him. But so, yeah, I'd say, let's see, that's four out of six. Not bad. You mentioned Jeremiah Smith before, but I just want to follow up on him too, because like, like you said, I mean, I feel like every week I read a new article that Jeremiah Smith is quote unquote locked into his Ohio state commitment. And then you read the article and and it talks about three or four other schools he's about to go visit. So, you know, it, it, you know, it feels like it's kind of, you know, it doesn't really feel like much has changed there. It feels like uh, he he's still committed to Ohio state. Uh, you know, he still expects to be a Buckeye, but He's not quite ready to shut down his recruitment yet. He's still, uh, you know, certainly kind of, you know, playing out the process here and seeing what other schools have to offer him. And so how good do you think Ohio State fans should feel about his commitment? Like, do you think there's reason to feel really good that he is going to be a Buckeye? Or do you think that there should be some trepidation about the fact that he is continuing to look around? I feel like every article I read has a very similar quote from him. I don't know if they're using the same one or not, or if he just gives different variations of the same one, but, and it's essentially something along the lines of, I'm still firmly committed to Ohio state. I'm just exploring my options in case there are coaching changes or schematical changes or something of that ilk. Um, The way I read it is that Jeremiah Smith, like many other wide receivers before him is very intrigued about playing under Brian Hartline and in that system, especially now that he's the offensive coordinator and being that next guy up at Ohio state that has put countless guys in the league over the last couple of years. And my gut, and this is just my gut says that if Brian Hartline is here at the end of this season, so will Jeremiah Smith. He will also be here. If he is not, then I think you're going to have a very hard time holding on to him. And, you know, as far as I know, Brian Hartline doesn't have any plans to go anywhere anytime soon, especially now that he's an offensive coordinator. So I still feel pretty good about where they're at on Jeremiah Smith. But I don't want to be completely dismissive of him taking all these visits because, you know, um, Ohio State is a school that usually isn't too keen on uh, any of their guys taking lots of extra visits once they're committed. And especially since, you know, there was like rumblings that Jeremiah Smith wanted to commit to Ohio state even earlier than he did uh, in December. He wanted to commit last spring, but they're like, well, maybe, maybe not yet. Let's make sure you take your other visits and make sure you're ready. But I do still firmly think that as long as Brian Hartline's here and as long as Ohio state continues to show that they're, just a great offense for wide receivers and they continue to put guys in the league and that still should continue because Marvin Harrison still exists <laughs> no matter who's throwing to him. I think that Jeremiah Smith will be here. Yeah. Garrick, uh, another Ohio state commit in that class that we mentioned a couple minutes ago um, is Toledo offensive lineman, Mark Nave, the most recent commitment for Ohio state. Uh, what was that back on March 8th? He committed to the Buckeyes. Uh, wh- what else do you think, you know, Ohio State fans should know about him. A three-star recruit looks like on the 247 Sports Composite, a top 20 prospect in the state of Ohio. And then maybe beyond that, how how else do you see 
kind of Ohio State's offensive line uh, class shaping up and who else could kind of join Nave in that group of commits for Ohio State? Well, I guess starting with Nave, um, he's always been a Buckeye through and through. When he was, I remember him telling me when he was seven, he sported a Braxton Miller jersey. And the first thing that came to mind is, wow, Braxton Miller jersey when you were seven. I feel old as hell. <laughs> but um, no, he's he has, I think he said his family still has that photo of him somewhere. Um, and that uh, kind of brought things full circle. But no, um, he's definitely one of those uh, developmental guys that could blossom into a, a really good prospect a couple years down the line. Um, he got the Ohio State offer because of the work that he's done on his body over the last 14, 15 months. He was at a guy that was about 365, 370, and now he's dropped down to 315, 310. So he's done a lot of work on his physique. Um, has gotten a lot quicker exploding off of the ball. Um, his footwork and handwork have improved mightily. And I think that when he gets to Ohio State, he's going to be a guy that plays either left or right guard or center. Um, he's played all five positions at uh, Toledo Central Catholic. Um, I don't think he's a tackle whatsoever. I think he's more of an interior guy. But he has practiced uh, snapping the ball a lot. So I think any of the three interior positions could work for him. And in terms of uh, – Offensive line in 2024, um, obviously Ian Moore, I think that he profiles more as a tackle than he does, uh, you know, a guard or a center. So that's one important position locked in. Um, I think that the Armstrong twins are certainly good bets to be in the class uh, before all said and done. But, you know, obviously uh, can't take anything for granted. I think Jordan Seaton, who is rated the best interior offensive line prospect, is... I still think a Ohio State lean at this point was talking with someone affiliated with the program a little bit ago, and he essentially said, yeah, I think, think, think it's going pretty good for Satan, but uh, but you never know once those uh, other premier schools start getting involved. But I think they feel pretty good there. I think at minimum, they want to take four in 2024, and at maximum, they would take six. And if they take six, that means that they're getting – two four to five star guys at uh, premier positions at offensive tackle and i'm not entirely sure that there's a uh, you know a top 50 guy that they're um, really in the running for yet i know that they're um you know in the mix for a couple of uh fringe guys outside of that but stuff could uh, get interesting as the stuff goes over the summer and We'll be will be interesting to see where offensive line goes, but I, I think that they'll want to get the Armstrong twins in the class if they can before uh, the summer's out, and uh, hopefully do the same for Seton, and that would make five if my math holds correctly, and uh, they'd probably want to go after one more offensive tackle prospect. So we'll see who kind of really rises to the top of their board after spreading summer visits at that tackle position. You mentioned Air Noland before. You mentioned Ryan Montgomery before. You mentioned Bryce Underwood. Uh, you know, free of a top target, certainly at quarterback right now between the 2024 and 2025 class. If you had to pick right now, who's the most likely Ohio quarterback Ohio State gets in 24 and who's the most likely quarterback Ohio State gets in 25? Well, I guess betting is legal, so I would set the odds at Air Nolan to probably being the favorite in 2024, only because I don't know exactly who else it would be. But we have seen uh, 
quarterbacks come out of nowhere and become Buckeyes relatively quickly in the past under Ryan Day. Devin Brown and Lincoln King holds being the uh, top two examples coming to mind for that. And CJ Stroud. I and CJ Stroud. But yeah, Aaron Noland, I think if he gets an offer on his visit, um, I think things could move with him very quickly. Um, especially if he's convinced that Ohio State is the place for him because he says he wants to have his commitment wrapped up before the end of the spring. So that upcoming visit, uh, end of March, early April, will be uh, very intriguing to see just how much Ohio State is into him and in turn how much he's into them. If it's not him, then I guess we go back to the drawing board. But 2025 certainly seems like it's shaping up between Ryan Montgomery and Bryce Underwood. Um I would guess that Ryan is probably the favorite in that class, but um, if they really like Bryce Underwood, you know, at one point uh, in 2024, it looked for sure Jaden Davis was the favorite to be Ohio State's quarterback before Dylan Rayola stepped in and Ryan Day got really invested in the Rayola camp. And obviously we all know how that uh, worked out, so I don't need to rehash it. Uh, Sorry for Ohio State fans that are listening to this, but um so quarterback recruiting especially can change quickly and it is certainly fluid but i would go with if you asked me today and i I had to pick i'd say probably air nolan for 2024 and ryan montgomery for 2025 yeah i mean if you look at it i mean really other than kyle mccord that was really the only quarterback recruitment in recent years that was just like that was their guy they got him and that was it like other than that Every year, there's there's been some kind of changes that have unfolded over the course of a recruiting cycle at the quarterback position. So certainly not uncommon to be in a position here where things are still developing and could still change uh, both in the 24 and 25 classes between now and the time those quarterbacks actually sign. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, and actually, like, there's a a theory that maybe it's best for Ohio state if uh, they recruit their quarterback slate to the end, because it's usually worked out better in terms of retention because, you know, of the Rayola decommitment, but I don't know. We'll, we'll just have to see how it plays out. All I know is that if things don't work out with air, I'm bracing myself for a fall commitment for a quarterback of somewhere that's probably not even on our radar right now. Garrick, we, we talked about three of the just four com- commits in that Ohio State 2024 class, um, Smith, Moore, Nave, and then Garrett Stover being the fourth there. Uh, th- that doesn't seem like a whole lot, Garrick. You kind of view that as Ohio State being behind in terms of commits right now. And who would, would you pick to be the next commit for Ohio State in that hall? Uh, I don't necessarily know that they're behind. I mean, Alabama only has four commits right now. Tennessee only has five. Oregon has five. You know, I guess Georgia has 10, so they're ahead of the curve for Ohio State. But I don't necessarily think four is, uh, you know, you raise the alarm bells that you only have four at this point. But um, I think they could maybe get one or two more before the end of the spring. And certainly we'll probably see a lot of success come in June. But you asked who uh, some candidates are for the next ones to pull the trigger. I think that uh, Lockhart would certainly be an intriguing answer for that. Um, Maybe on his visit on the 10th, Um, maybe he'll take it into the summer because he'll want to take his officials. But every time I talk to that guy, he keeps saying how much he loves Ohio state. Um, The Armstrong twins, 
I mean, you know, they're local guys that also grew up Buckeye fans. Wouldn't discount them, even though they've said that they aren't in a rush to make a decision. And Sam Williams Dixon uh, might be a guy that wants to reserve his spot in the class um, as they plan to take two running backs this year. But again, he's also said that he's not in a rush either. So if I had to pick one, I'd say uh, one of those three, well, four counting the Armstrong twins, but they're almost certainly going to commit together. So I'd say your best bet somewhere in there. Derek, if you had to pick one player in the 2024 class right now that you would consider to be a must get for Ohio State, who would that player be? Hmm, Must get. I'll probably go Bryce West just because he's the best player in the state. And while I think they're in a good spot with him, I don't necessarily think that he's a gimme like he was maybe a year ago. I think that Michigan will be a very strong contender with him and with uh, let's face it, the Wolverines on field success over Ohio State the last two years. Maybe they're a little bit more of a threat than they normally would be. And I think he's also a guy that's going to take his recruitment down to the very end in December. So I think that a lot can change between now and then. So this isn't to raise the panic meter, or raise the red flag. I still think that Bryce West ends up at Ohio State when all is said and done. And I'd be surprised if he doesn't. I just don't think that he's a lock to Ohio State is maybe – some fans may think when you hear he grew up rooting for Ohio State and he's a Glenville kid and all that. But um, from a talent perspective and from him being the top player in state, and if he doesn't go to Ohio State, he's likely going to Michigan perspective. I would say that Bryce West is your top musket player from Ohio State's perspective. Well, Garrick, we want to thank you for joining us on the show. I'm sure we'll have you uh, back on here. Uh, before too long with all these uh, visits coming up and, you know, we'll see uh, what, what it ends up ultimately leading to for Ohio state. But of course, everybody can uh, read your work on 11 warriors.com and you'll be covering uh, all of it as it unfolds on the recruiting trail. All right. Thanks for having me. Well, as for the current Ohio state football team, uh, they are back on the field this week uh, for spring practice. They got back after it. On Tuesday, uh, you know, as uh, we mentioned before, while talking with Garrick, uh, it will be uh, the first scrimmage week for Ohio State as Ohio State uh, will uh, hold a scrimmage on Saturday and uh, the media is expected to be able to watch that. And so uh, we're looking forward to that. I I know uh, I certainly am, Griffin, as uh, I think it's going to be our first, you know, real opportunity uh, to get to watch. Uh, the players in real football action and have a chance to actually evaluate them. Cause I know, you know, our listeners always want to hear, you know, how certain guys are looking and realistically, when we only get to watch, you know, 20 minutes of practice, you, you can't really make a real evaluation of a player, but I think, you know, getting to actually see these guys on the field and scrimmage action is going to give us uh, a, a real feel for, you know, how certain guys are looking. Of course, it's just one practice, but, you know, to see those guys out there and, you know, what will be the first really, truly competitive setting of of the spring of the offseason, I, I think will tell us a lot about uh, which players are, are making a move uh, right now. Yeah, Dan, it's not an opportunity. We get a whole uh, a lot here at Ohio State. Um, and, and I think we're it's it's no photo or video right then at the scrimmage. That's so correct. it's certainly going to be an exercise and and note taking and everything like that. So um, we'll have to keep our eyes you know, on, on high alert on Saturday for sure. But I think uh, because Ohio State has yet to have that that type of scrimmage so far this spring, just three practices in uh, Tuesday being the, the first day of padded practice after spring break for Ohio State. 
Ryan Day during his press conference on Tuesday kind of, you know, held back some of his evaluations. He wasn't really ready to jump to a whole lot of conclusions as far as a lot of, uh, you know, position groups are going and stuff like that, because he kept saying, you know, we have to wait and, and see until we get into more game-like situations. That will be an opportunity on Saturday for Ohio State to uh, see a lot of those guys in a, a game-like situation. Uh, but still, Dan, I thought Brian Day did have some interesting things to say about some guys that, that kind of seemed to to tip his hand a little bit as far as his feelings on certain position battles. One of those, Dan, being at center, uh, where, of course, Carson Hinsman and the Louisiana Monroe transfer Victor Cutler have kind of been you know, pegged as the, the two front runners there. And Ryan Day did kind of divulge a little bit there by, by saying that he's been impressed by what he's seen from Hinsman and that he, he thinks that, that Cutler is kind of still undergoing a bit of a transition phase, obviously, because of the, the step up in competition, the step up in kind of caliber of program, Dan. Yeah, I thought from a personnel perspective, that was probably the most interesting thing we heard from Tuesday's press conference where, you know, it, it did seem like, you know, a little bit of a challenge to Vic Cutler of, you know, hey, he's, we practice at a different level here at Ohio State than maybe you were used to at Louisiana Monroe. And so kind of looking for him to take that next step if he's going to make a serious push for that starting center job. But there, there, there's been a buzz about Carson Hinsman, just the way Ryan Day has talked about him, the way Justin Fry has talked about him all offseason so far. It, it, you could tell they've seen something in Carson Hinsman that they really like what they're seeing there. And so I think, uh, you know, it, it certainly feels to me like, you know, he's emerged as that early front runner at center. Still a long way to go there. I mean, again, they, uh, you know, as he, as he mentioned, they, hey, you know, Tuesday was the first day in pads. They, you know, haven't even really done like inside drill yet. So there's still a long way to go there in, in, in that competition. It's just starting, but it does feel right now like, Carson Hinsman's in that pole position. You know, Vic Cutler is going to keep getting a chance to compete for it. You know, Jacob James is going to get a chance to compete for it uh, when he comes back in the summer after, you know, missing this spring following a surgery. But, you know, it, it feels like Carson Hinsman's doing what he needs to do early on to put himself in a position where he he's going to have a chance, even though he didn't play any snaps last year, he, he's got a chance to potentially step into that starting center role as a redshirt freshman. Yeah, Dan, uh, Ryan Day said, you know, beyond quarterbacks, which we'll get into here in a second as well, that obviously the offensive line and kind of the whole secondary are the things on his mind the most at the moment. Um, he didn't really, uh, he was asked about the right tackle situation as well, uh, which along with center are obviously the, you know, two of the, the biggest position battles for the Buckeyes up front. He said, you know, it's kind of too early to, to really divulge anything about the right tackle situation. But I think one positive for sure, Dan, that we've kind of seen now carry over through a, a couple of, of press conference opportunities with Ryan Day is that he's been very pleased, it seems, with the, the caliber of cornerback play, uh, mentioning, you know, a lot of guys in that in that mix there with the likes of Denzel Burke. Um, Jair Brown also was it was Tuesday's silver bullet of the day, which Jim Knowles likes to post on social media. Um, Jordan Hancock got a shout out as well. Davison Igbenosin, it seems like he's really picking up a lot of steam um, and, and goodwill from the fan base, I would say, as well, uh, just from some of the technique he's kind of shown and some clips from, from practice and otherwise. Um, so it sounds like, you know, Ryan Day said, you know, about the secondary, he was like, the, the cornerbacks look really good today. I'll have to kind of see about the safety play once I watch the tape back. But certainly for the cornerbacks, then it seems things seem to be going well so far. Yeah, I mean, if you just think back to past off seasons, like, obviously, like, it's hard to know, like, just based on press conference comments, like, how good everybody's doing but 
when I do think back to past off seasons, like usually when he's talking up a group and he, and he continues to do that repeatedly and he's excited about them. Usually that ends up leading to good play from that group in the fall. And usually when he's kind of like, eh, we'll see. I don't know how I feel about it right now. Usually that group ends up having some issues when the, when the season comes along. So, you know, when I read into those comments, like I, I read into what he's saying at corner and like, yeah, I think they feel pretty good about what they've got for a two deep at corner right now. I don't know if they know who the starters are for sure, but I think between Denzel Burt, Davis and Igbenos and Jordan Hancock and Jair Brown, I, I think they've got four cornerbacks who all have a chance of earning real playing time this year. So, I, you know, I, 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 you know, I know cornerbacks a position that a lot of people have in the crosshairs right now because they, they didn't live up to expectations last season, but I think there's reason to to be optimistic about the cornerback position. I, I think they've got a, a solid core of guys there who have the potential to be really good players with an off season of development. And so, you know, I, I, there definitely seems to be good vibes there. You know, like when I hear like, you know, again, we're just reading between the lines. So, you know, you, you don't want to read too much into it. But like when I hear him say too early to tell it right tackle and doesn't really specify anybody, my read on that is at least probably not overly impressed with what he's seen from those guys yet. We'll see how that unfolds over the rest of the spring. Cause again, it's only three practices in, but you know, the fact that he made a point to single out Carson Hinsman, he didn't make a point to single out either of the right tackles. That says something to me. Yeah, for sure. And, and as for the the quarterback position uh, specifically here, Ryan Day had some some interesting and, and kind of, you know, seemingly contradictory statements about, you know, kind of what he's looking for from the likes of Kyle McCord and Devin Brown in this ongoing quarterback battle here this spring. Uh, Ryan Day was was said he, he said this multiple times now that, you know, with all of the skill position talent around these guys, he doesn't need them to come out here and be, you know, just ele- electric superstars. What he said. We're not looking for anything extraordinary necessarily um, because of the the other guys around them that can make plays, the likes of Marvin Harrison Jr., Travion Henderson, all the guys in the running back room, Emeka Abuka, et cetera. But Dan, then he went on to say that, you know, when kind of trying to differentiate these guys in the evaluation process, that they're looking for the extraordinary traits. So uh, that was kind of interesting from Ryan Day. You know, I feel like the those two things don't necessarily have to be at odds because, you know, you're, you're still looking for you know, these extraordinary things from these guys, you just might not be, you know, looking to make them show all of that, you know, in their first year, their first, the first half of their, you know, first season as starting quarterback for Ohio State. But then I guess, what did you kind of make of those comments from day? Yeah. I mean, we were all kind of laughing about it, but uh, because, you know, they were using the, the same words to basically say uh, two completely different things. But, you know, I, I do think that, what he's saying, like you said, it's not necessarily at, at odds. I think it all can make sense because I think what he's saying is individually in our quarterback, you know, we want to see something that makes them stand out. You know, it's you know, you're looking when y- you have two really talented quarterbacks, it, they're, when they're trying to decide between those two quarterbacks, they're looking for something to stand out with one of those guys, but between the other in in what area is one of those guys going to show that they are better than the other guy. And he wouldn't say what that was because he doesn't want to put that out there right now. But, you know, I think that's what they're looking for is as they evaluate these guys, you know, eventually one's got to separate from the other and they're kind of looking for what's that quality that one of them has that might ultimately make them the best guy. And so I think that's what he meant when he's talking about, you know, looking for that extraordinary trait 
But I think in terms of just, you know, what they expect from a quarterback as a whole, I think what he's trying to say is, you know, if a quarterback doesn't necessarily need to come in and be Superman, he just needs to come in and be able to run the offense and utilize the talent he has around him. And so, you know, I think it's fair to say you're looking for something extraordinary from the quarterbacks in terms of what they bring to the table, in terms of trying to win that starting job. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the quarterback has to be perfect. He's got to be flawless from from day one when he becomes the starting quarterback with with minimal experience. So I, I think that's what he's saying there is, you know, they they are looking for something from one of these guys that's going to set them apart. But they're also not expecting perfection from either quarterback when the season starts because they know there's probably going to be some growing pains, you know, just as there were for CJ Stroud when he became a starter two years ago. Yeah, Dan. And for, for those listening, you know, on Wednesday here, Ohio State pro day is happening on Wednesday. Um, So Ryan day talked about that, you know, a a good deal on Tuesday, but we will have more on that for you guys on 11warriors.com and on social media. So stay locked in for updates uh, from pro day on Wednesday. Yeah, it may have already happened by the time you're listening to this, or at least will have started by the time you're listening to this. Uh, but certainly, uh, we will talk more next week about what uh, we were able to see from you know inside the Woody Hayes Athletic Center, where C.J. Stroud, Jackson, and Jigba, all of Ohio State's uh, draft prospects are are working out Wednesday, and that's you know always a an interesting event and certainly a spectacle uh, with scouts from all. 32 NFL teams in attendance to watch a very talented group of Ohio State draft prospects. The other news on the football front from this past week was uh, Ohio State releasing the contracts, new contracts for all 10 of its assistant coaches, and uh, certainly some interesting information uh, that we learned within those contracts. Uh, You know, I think uh, probably the headliner, but also not a surprise, was Brian Hartline getting a $650,000 raise. He is now making $1.6 million as Ohio State's offensive coordinator, which we knew a big raise for Brian Hartline was coming because, you know, as Garrick mentioned earlier, I mean, this is a guy who's been in high demand. You know, Cincinnati interviewed him for their head coaching job. Uh, you know, that, that demand's probably going to continue on a yearly basis. And so Ohio State, it has to compensate him well uh, to keep him around. And they're certainly doing that now with that big raise that he got. Uh, you know, interestingly, though, he's not the only assistant who got a raise that pushed him up into the seven figure range because Justin Fry and Tim Walton are also now both making $1 million. And I think the one that I think certainly raised my eyebrows and probably a lot of people out there was Tim Walton getting a $300,000 raise after just one year? Because, you know, as we just talked about with the corners, uh, you know, corners were certainly not a strong suit of the team last year. And so I think certainly, you know, you can question, well, why did Tim Walton get a $300,000 raise after just one year in which uh, the cornerback play was not exemplary? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, without being able to say for certain, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that if, if Tim Walton got that kind of raise after one year, it means that other teams were interested in him. And most likely those were teams in the NFL because 
Tim Walton's a guy who has a lot of experience coaching in the NFL. And so, uh, you know, there were rumblings that there was, you know, interest in him from the NFL. And, you know, if there were teams offering him the opportunity to go back to the league, uh, you know, Ohio State had to pay up to keep him. And certainly that's something that uh, Ryan Day wanted to do. Uh, Ohio State also uh, promoted Tim Walton, giving him a new title of defensive passing game coordinator, which, you know, when it when it comes to these titles, I I I don't know how much all of them really mean. You know, I think a lot of times these titles are more just a way of justifying a raise or uh, you know promoting promoting somebody in a way to you know keep them in a, around and keep them happy. But Ryan Day did indicate Tuesday that you know, he really wants Tim Walton to be a leader for the entire secondary. That. You know, Tim Walton has primarily coached for corners. Perry Eliano has primarily coached for safeties. But Ryan Day indicated that you know they really want the corners and safeties to you know meet together and you know do you know do a lot of things together to make sure there's synergy on that back end. You know, perhaps more than there was last year. And you know, it sounds like you know Tim Walton's going to be the guy that's leading that charge, even though. Perry Eliano is certainly going to have a have a significant voice there as well. Yeah, Dan, and obviously with with Kevin Wilson, you know, leaving the staff and things like that, Ohio State obviously had a little bit more money to work with uh, with, with some of these assistant contracts here. Uh, but I think still, you know, some people might have been you know a little surprised to see to see guys like Justin Fry and maybe in particular Parker Fleming both getting uh, 200k raises. Dan, um, Justin Fry also getting a promotion to the title of run game coordinator. Uh, again, you just kind of mentioned that you know some of these titles do they really mean much of anything? Uh, Dan, do you think that that Justin Fry's promotion in particular, because you know Ohio State did you know the the offensive line play was was pretty stellar. Obviously, guys like Paris Johnson and Dewan Jones potentially both being you know, first round NFL draft selections and things like that. Um, but do you think that that raise was warranted for him or does it have anything to do with uh, the fact that, you know, he was passed over uh, with that offensive coordinator position uh, in, instead of Brian Hartline? Or what do you think is, you know, is behind that one? Yeah, I think probably a little bit of both. I mean, there was a feeling when Justin Fry came to Ohio State that he would eventually succeed Kevin Wilson as the offensive coordinator. And so the fact that Ohio State decided to go in a different direction there with, with Brian Hartline, um, certainly I think Ohio State wanted to make Justin Fry feel appreciated. And so I think that has a lot to do with him uh, both getting that $200,000 raise as well as getting that promotion to run game coordinator. And you know certainly there could be some more responsibility on his plate because of what you mentioned with Kevin Wilson leaving because, you know, Kevin Wilson was very integral to the run game at Ohio state with Ryan day and Brian Hartline, you know, being very involved in the passing game. Obviously the passing game is Brian Hartline's area of expertise. And so I think there certainly could be more on Justin Fry's plate, just in terms of designing run plays and being involved in the game plan. Now that Kevin Wilson is no longer on staff. And with Fleming, obviously, there's been a lot of criticism, uh, you know, on social media, things of that nature. You point to some of Ohio State's kind of special teams snafus with some of the, the fake punt execution and stuff like that down the stretch of this past season with him getting, you know, a, a, a quite a significant raise there. I think some people are going to have some strong opinions on that for sure. Um, and Dan, this is something that was really surprising, I think, to all of us was was seeing, you know, what, what Mark Pantone makes 
Uh, you wrote it down here, uh, $334,000, almost, uh, you know, three thirty-five there for him. But just like w- with how kind of synonymous he is with the program and, and how much you hear his name and, and, you know, how integral he is to the success of the program, uh, wouldn't you think that that his salary would be a little higher at this point, Dan? Yeah, honestly, I would. Now, granted, I, I think, you know, a lot of that just has to do with the fact that generally directors of player personnel don't make as much money as as coaches. So, I mean, commensurate to his position, he he is certainly, I don't have the numbers for everybody, but he's certainly one of the highest paid general managers slash directors of player personnel in the country. And so it's not that he's, you know, underpaid. I mean, he certainly, uh, you know, has expressed nothing but being very happy to be at Ohio State. But you do think of it when you when you just think in terms of value to the staff. Like, I, I, I think not not to slight any of the assistant coaches, but I think Mark, I think you could make a strong case that, that Mark Bantoni as just as, if not more valuable than a good number of the assistant coaches who are making more money than him. And so, you know, I, I, you know, so, I mean, I think, you know, in that sense, it was, you know, a bit striking. I mean, obviously, you know, those assistant coaches, you know, they're the ones who are going out on the road, traveling to go get recruits. They're the ones who, you know, have certain responsibilities on their plate that, you know, maybe assigned to them by Pantone, but they still have to do, you know, those things when, when Pantone uh, cannot because he's not allowed to go, you know, travel on the road to recruit. So that's certainly a factor into it. Just the fact that, you know, they have, you know, those travel responsibilities on their plate, they're away from home a lot more, you know, those are certainly things that, you know, factor into that too, in terms of, you know, job responsibilities and, and the pay. But, you know, I certainly think uh, Ohio State fans would agree that, uh, Mark Pantone is earning, you know, every dollar of that salary with the the consistent efforts he has put in to lead Ohio State's recruiting. How about James Laurinaitis as well, Dan? We've, we've already talked about, you know, obviously the potential path there for James Laurinaitis to ascend in the assistant coaching ranks at Ohio State in the future. But right now, you know, just technically a GA, but making $142,000. Yeah, that's he might be the best paid GA in the country. Again, I don't have all the details of that, but you know, graduate assistant salaries are typically not six figures. And so uh, for him to be making 142,000, uh, you know, I think the first thing that tells you is, well, he's, he's not any ordinary GA. And that's, and we knew that already uh, with him being a free time, all American with him being somebody who, I mean, I mean, Ohio state put out a formal press release to announce James Laurinaitis is higher. They don't do that for other graduate assistants. So, I mean, it, I think, he had an interview session by Ohio State. They don't do that for our graduate assistants either. So it's very clear already that James Laurinaitis is not your typical graduate assistant at Ohio State. That he is, I mean, realistically, the only reason James Laurinaitis is even considered a graduate assistant is because that's what he has to be in order to be able to actually coach players on the field. Because not all the support staffers are allowed to do that. But before designated graduate assistants can. So realistically, that's the only reason James Laurinaitis is is a quote graduate assistant. If if Ohio State could hire more than ten full time coaches right now, if they had gotten rid of a limit on countable coaches, James Laurinaitis would probably already be that. And I think certainly you can you can already see that path being created there, where eventually I think Ohio State anticipates J- 
James Laurinaitis being a full-time member of their coaching staff. If things go the way that they think it will in terms of him helping with the linebackers and in terms of him helping with recruiting, I think it's a matter of time before James Laurinaitis you know, climbs the coaching ladder at Ohio State, much like we saw Brian Hartline do. And Dan, I don't know. I don't remember if you had this in your report or not, but do you have any idea how much of a pay bump that was from his position at Notre Dame? That I don't know because with Notre Dame being a private university, right. they are not subject to the same uh, FOIA rules that Ohio State is. So I, I do not know what his salary was at Notre Dame. Bottom line, Dan, Ohio State is obviously not skimping on you know paying their assistant coaches. Uh, they may have the you know they may lead the country in terms of. Uh, assistant coaching salary with all of that totaling up to 9.323 million. Um, you can compare that to Alabama, which is at 9.17 million. So Ohio State is definitely trying to, you know, push the boundaries there when it comes to paying these assistant coaches. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's very clear that Ohio State is is investing in the success of its football program through coaching salaries. I know there's been some unrest among Ohio State fans in terms of you know, NIL efforts and all that, which of course, you know, that that's kind of out of Ohio state's control because Ohio state cannot directly pay players on the NIL front. And so, you know, that's not something that's fully within Ohio state's control, but I think it's clear when you look at the salaries they're paying to the football coaches and, you know, just the, you know, every, everything they're investing into the Ohio state football program that, you know, Ohio state is, is very invested in, in having one of the best football programs in the country and are certainly uh, financially doing what they can uh, to, to, to try to make that happen. Dan, elsewhere in Ohio State sports, you know, even with the Ohio State men's basketball program not in the NCAA tournament, yeah, it's been an exciting week in Columbus because both of the, both the men's and women's tournaments uh, have been going on here in the capital city of Ohio. Uh, talk about the Ohio State women's team in particular. Dan, you were in attendance um, on Monday night where Ohio State beat North Carolina on a, a clutch, you know, last couple seconds shot, a game winner from J.C. Sheldon with 1.8 seconds remaining to advance uh, to the Sweet 16. Dan, what were your experiences, you, you you know, firsthand there at the shot for that one? Yeah, I felt like I was back at the Peach Bowl with those uh, last second game <laughs> jitters there trying to write a recap to publish as soon as the game is over and not knowing with 10 seconds left. Uh, whether Ohio State was going to win that game. But yeah, certainly, uh, you know, the fans at, at the Schottenstein Center got a great show on Monday night. Uh, you know, really ex- exciting game. You know, one of those games where, you know, you felt the whole time like Ohio State was going to win, but North Carolina just wouldn't go away. Like every time it looked like Ohio State was going to have a chance to pull away in that game, North Carolina ended up clawing back, ended up actually taking the lead there in the final two minutes of the game. And so, you know, Ohio State was certainly in jeopardy there late in the game of of potentially being knocked out in the first weekend. But ultimately, J.C. Sheldon coming up uh, with a great shot. I mean, with three defenders in her face, uh, you know, floating the ball into the rim for uh, the game winner in that 71-69 victory over North Carolina uh, and sending Ohio State to the Sweet 16 for the second year in a row. So uh, certainly uh, it's it's been a successful season. Uh, you, you know, I think I think you can now say, no matter what happens from here on out, it's been another successful season for Ohio State women's basketball to to earn a number three seed in the NCAA tournament, make it to the Big Ten tournament final, uh, to make it to the Sweet 16. Uh, I think, you know, it's certainly it, it's been a successful year for Ohio State. I think uh, there's been a lot of good good things from that program this year. You know, with that being said, 
the path's about to get really tough because Ohio State is going to play UConn on Saturday at 4 p.m. That game uh, will take place in Seattle and it will be televised on ABC. And to illustrate how tough that matchup is, I mean, we really just got to look at this stat. UConn has made 14 straight Final Fours. Like, I mean, I was looking at those stats. I'm like, that's absurd. I mean, UConn had 14 straight Final Fours, 16 straight Elite Eight. So that, that's how consistently great UConn has been. And so that certainly underscores just how big a challenge Ohio State has ahead of it on Saturday. Now, you know, with that being said, if Ohio State can pull off a win, I mean, we we would be talking about o- Ohio State women's basketball's biggest win in 30 years. Uh, Ohio State has not been to the Elite Eight since 1993. Uh, that year, back when they had Katie Smith, was actually they went all the way to the national championship game before losing to Texas Tech. And so that's, you know, in recent memory, the most, I mean, I shouldn't even say recent memory, probably ever, the most successful season Ohio State women's basketball has ever had. The Sweet 16 has kind of been a monkey on their back for Ohio State. Uh, they're only three and nine all time in the Sweet 16, uh, ha- have lost in their last five trips to the Sweet 16. And so, um, you know, it, it's going to be tough. I mean, again, I think, you know, if you're, if you're, you're looking at a number two matchup in the bracket, uh, I think UConn is probably, uh, the hardest one that you could have gotten, uh, just because, uh, you, UConn a team much like Ohio state where they had to deal with some key injuries this year. Uh, you know, Paige Becker's lost for the entire season. She's still unavailable. Uh, but, uh, AZ Fudd, I, I always mess up that name, so I might have pronounced that wrong, but she was out for a lot of regular season. She's now back. Uh, Leah Edwards is a really good player for UConn, and then a name Ohio State fans uh, will be familiar with for sure. Uh, Dorky Uhash, who used to play for Ohio State, uh, was a two-time All-Big Ten player at Ohio State. She now plays for UConn and is one of their top players. And so, I mean, from a talent perspective, you know, outside of South Carolina, UConn may be the most talented team in the tournament. And so this is going to be a massive test for Ohio State. But, you know, I will say this. I mean, we've seen it from this Ohio State team that when they play at their best, they're capable of beating just about anybody. I mean, maybe not South Carolina, because I think South Carolina is in a class of its own right now. But, you know, we've seen them beat Indiana. Well, Indiana, you know, was uh, ousted in the second round of a tournament. Of both the men's and women's Hoosiers losing to Miami in the second round. So some kind of fun synergy there. But, you know, Indiana was ranked as the number two team in the country at the time when Ohio State beat them. We've seen some other big wins from the Buckeyes this year. And so I don't rule out the possibility that Ohio State can win on Saturday. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to predict an Ohio State win with any confidence. But I do think that the way Ohio State, you know, when Ohio State's been at its best, I, I do think it, it, it's capable. I think it's capable of beating UConn. I think it's it's going to have to be at its best. But I, I don't think this UConn team, I, I think this UConn team is really good. And I think the, the thing that makes this matchup scary is I think this UConn team has gotten better. I think they've gotten better as the season has progressed. They've had some rough patches during the season, but I think down the stretch, they've really started to look more like one of those vintage UConn teams. And so it's going to be a tough game, but I don't think it's an unwinnable game for Ohio State. I think Ohio State is capable of winning that game. And certainly if Ohio State can find a way to pull it off, 
uh, it, it would be uh, an incredible moment for the Buckeyes. A lot of fun storylines going into that one. If Ohio State does end up upsetting UConn, Virginia Tech, or Tennessee, waits in the wings after that one. Dan, how about another Ohio State program that's already finished its postseason journey, the Pistol Team, which has now won its third straight national championship. Dan, I actually did a story on the Pistol Team my senior year uh, of college working for the Lantern, and I want to say that would have been before they won any of these three national championships here. So definitely interesting to see the you know powerhouse success they've had in consecutive seasons here as of late. Yeah, we may need you to do another story on the Ohio State Pistol team. They've become a a real a real a real dynasty over there, winning three straight national championships. So uh, certainly, uh, congratulations to those Buckeyes who you know have been uh, very dominant in in that sport in recent years. And so you know, great accomplishment for them. Uh, we also saw Ohio State women's hockey this past weekend come up just short of defending its national title. Uh, Buckeyes uh, had not been shut out all season were unable to score a goal uh, in a one nothing loss to Wisconsin. Uh, you know, had a lot of chances, just never quite were able to break through in that game. But, you know, certainly still a lot of credit due to Nadine Muzaral and that entire Ohio State women's hockey program. Uh, you know, she she has taken a program that had never even made the NCAA tournament when she became a coach and has built them into truly one of the elite programs in women's college hockey. So, uh, you know, she deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, also, Sophie Jakes uh, winning the Patty Kazmaier Award. Uh, I remember at this time last year, we had Nadine Mesral on the show after Ohio State did win the national championship. And, and she was adamant that she felt Sophie Jakes had deserved to win the Patty Kazmaier Award. She didn't win it last year, but she did win it this year, uh, becoming the first ever Ohio State player to win that award, which is effectively uh, women's hockey's equivalent to the Heisman Trophy honoring the best player in women's college hockey and, uh, you know, capping off a phenomenal career for Sophie Jakes, who, uh, you know, certainly uh, I think would have a strong case now for being the best women's hockey player Ohio State has ever had. Some other uh, news and notes from around the Oval, so to speak, Dan. Ohio State men's hockey begins its NCAA tournament run on Friday against Harvard. Ohio State wrestling finished fourth of the NCAAs, which was its best finish since you know, before COVID in 2019 and Ohio state women's swimming and diving, Dan finishing six in the NCAAs for its best finish ever. Second weekend of the NCAA tournament for men's side coming up this weekend as well. Uh, you know, we, we, we made some upset picks last week and Griffin, I, I was right about Purdue losing in the first weekend, although I admittedly didn't think they were going to lose quite as early as they did. Yeah, that was that was the most fun one of the of the weekend, in my opinion, Dan. I had to watch that one, you know, closely there in Columbus uh, made it all, you know, the more fun. Obviously, Purdue ended Ohio State's season in the Big Ten tournament, you know, the, the Big Ten regular season and tournament champions. And they're ousted now for the third straight year, Dan, losing to a double digit seed in the NCAA tournament. And of course, one of the storylines, again, uh, as it has been in recent years in the NCAA tournament is you have a Big Ten underachieving in March. The Big Ten had eight teams in the NCAA tournament. Only one team left in the Sweet 16. Now, I don't really think anybody should be shocked by that. I mean, I, I predicted that last week, that there would only be one team left in the Sweet 16 from the Big Ten now. I got the team wrong. I had predicted Indiana. Uh, that team ended up being Michigan State, who upset Marquette uh, over a weekend in the second round. But, you know, I, I don't know that it's shocking 
that the Big Ten only has one team in a Sweet 16. I, I also think that when we're talking about it this year, maybe it's a little bit overblown because, I mean, only two of the teams were, were top four seeds. And if you look at the conference breakdown, the the SEC has three teams in the Sweet 16. The Big East has three teams in the Sweet 16. The Big 12 has two. No other conference has more than one. And so it, it's hard. It's hard to get a lot of teams into the Sweet 16, right? Like it's 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 there's only so many spots there. And so, you know, the idea of it like, oh, half the Big Ten team should be in the Sweet 16, you know, that that's that wasn't really realistic to begin with in my mind. Now, with that being said, there is a clear trend here of, of the Big Ten underperforming in the NCAA tournament. You know, certainly teams like Purdue and Iowa, you know, those are teams that I think have been repeat offenders of teams that have just not, you know, shown up in the tournament. You know, and I think, you know, again, you start with Purdue. I mean, the big reason why I I thought Purdue would have a short stay in the NCAA tournament is because teams that are built around a big center with mediocre guard play typically don't succeed in the tournament. And I think that's been the big thing that I think has hurt the Big Ten here. And, you know, we we talked about it before the season. I thought it was a smart thing for Ohio State to build around a smaller guard-heavy core of players. Now, it didn't work this past year, clearly, but that's why when, you know, I know one of the regular complaints from Ohio State basketball fans is about not having enough size. I look at what happens in March every year, and I just I don't I don't look at that and say that's the that's Ohio State's biggest problem. I, I just I just don't. They're going to have a little bit more size this next year with bringing in Austin Parks to pair with Felix Okpara Zed Key. But I, I don't think it's it's about having more size. I, I think what it really again you look at it in the tournament. It's about you know really good guards and wing play. Like that's usually what wins in March. And so I think Ohio State has the right idea if it continues to build primarily around a smaller guard heavy core of players, you just need enough of those players to, to be able to perform at a high enough level that you actually are an NCAA tournament team. Yeah. And I think that's obviously why we've seen Purdue go out early and why, why we see Michigan state, a team that is, you know, typically built around guard play and things like that uh, able to succeed out of the big 10 group. Dan, all of my final four picks are still in the tournament right now. Talking about Alabama, Tennessee, Houston, and UCLA. All will be playing for a chance to go to the Elite Eight. Uh, any changes for your final four picks? And what call your shot, Dan, biggest upset of the upcoming weekend? Nice little humble brag there from Griffin. But yeah, I, I've got three <laughs> of my final four still intact with Alabama, Texas, UCLA. Uh, Marquette, who I did have in there, they got upset by Michigan State. So I'm going to go Kansas State now to win that region. Actually, they're they're actually Michigan State's actually favored to beat Kansas State, even though uh, Kansas State's the higher seed. But I think there's been a little bit of Kansas State disrespect. They were an underdog against Kentucky. Uh, they got it done there. I'm I'm going to say Kansas State makes a run uh, to the Final Four, uh, joining the free teams that I already had. But I will I will admit. My confidence in UCLA is not that high right now because their injuries have started to pile up with Gonzaga and UConn in that region. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, a challenging run for them, but I, I'm, I got to stick with my original pick. So I am going to stick with UCLA in my final four. Biggest upset this weekend, I'm going to say Miami knocks off Houston in the Sweet 16. I'm just not 
all that bullish on, on Houston. So I'm going to save it. Miami knocks off Houston. What about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got Princeton making a run to the elite eight. I love uh, beating, it. Beating Creighton a number six seed. I think that's a winnable, potentially winnable game. If you look how well Princeton has played as of late, that would be a fun Cinderella story uh, as we get to the, you know, b- biggest stages here of the NCAA tournament. Yeah, Creighton's been playing really well, so I got Creighton in that one, but uh, certainly it, it's fun to see an Ivy League team make a run, so it would be pretty cool if if Princeton is able to keep it going. Uh, we will enjoy watching that, as I'm sure you all will as well, and uh, we'll enjoy uh, continuing to keep up with, with spring football uh, scrimmage coming up on Saturday, and we'll be back next week to, to tell you about everything we learned from watching that scrimmage. So looking forward to that. Hoping you all are as well, and we'll catch up with you then.